you know, I, I should have made this green. It just occurred to me. <laughs> but that would require effort, and this episode uh, doesn't deserve that. Oh, my God. Okay. Let's talk for a second, okay? I've always said that lamentations are bottom of the barrel, that it takes something special to qualify as lamentation. But what I never realized was that there's still a gradient when it comes to lamentations. This episode is, isn't even on the same scale as Code of Honor, for example, because Code of Honor is just horrible at every level. You know, the, the racism, sexism, um, the detrimental character, you know, character assassination, and then even if all of that was removed, it's still a terrible episode underneath all that, right? That is bad, 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 bad. This is bad, bad. So you can kind of see the distinction there, right? So this is something I've kind of come to, to understand and come to grips with with my own system of doing this because I'm, i i got to be honest, I'm kind of making it up as I go. When we got to Threshold, the lamentation thing, I don't even remember, it wasn't even my idea. Someone else came up with the idea for the term. I don't remember who. I want to say it was my sister. And it was like, what, what do I do with this? Because this is such a face-palmingly bad episode. And at the time, the idea was... Each series that I was planning to cover, because I was planning to go past Voyager, each series got one lamentation. So the lamentation could only be the worst episode of an entire uh, entire run. So, you know, Threshold was it for Voyager for me. I stand by that firmly. Threshold it is still the worst episode of Voyager for me. And honestly, so far, I would say Code of Honor probably qualifies for TNG. And over on DS9, uh, that's tricky. Because I'm torn between Move Along Home and Profit and Lace. We'll probably do like a top five, bottom five kind of a thing. We'll probably have some fan votes going on too. In fact, by the time this episode goes live, I might have already started doing that. I'm not sure. Point being, this isn't as bad as Code of Honor. But it's bad. And it's also bad. Um... This is a Taylor script. Now, I point that out because you might be like, well, wait, hang on. It was originally by Gianna uh, F. Gal Gallo? Gallo? I don't know how to pronounce her name. It was, a, it was a script that was submitted. Hey, wait, I thought they weren't taking submissions anymore. They really needed scripts at this point. And Braga was the one who actually did the teleplay. But no, trust me, this is a Taylor script. It has her fingerprints all over it. And she herself has talked about it extensively. Which brings me to my next point. You remember how I mentioned how all the creators absolutely hated the previous episode? Oh, God, what was that? I don't remember the name all of a sudden. It was just a few episodes ago. And they were like, oh, God, it sucked so bad. Was it, Force? it was Force of Nature. Remember how the creators were all like, oh, man, Force of Nature is just such a crap episode. None of the creative staff have spoken ill of this episode with two exceptions. Jonathan Frakes, who directed it, and Gates McFadden, who is obvious. Other than that, everyone speaks positively about this episode. I don't get that. I really don't. I mean, I, I know we all have differing opinions and different perspectives, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think that's awesome. I actually believe in the concept of people disagreeing with each other, you know, respectfully, politely, and having different perspectives and different ideas and different preferences. But what I don't understand is how they could universally be in favor of this episode. So I did a little digging. I did a little digging. There's a comment in here 
This is repeated in Memory Alpha, and I've seen multiple other reviewers all repeat this comment. And I quote, Those who enjoyed the show and those who despite its first foray into the genre of gothic horror can be separated largely across gender lines. In other words, men hated it, women loved it. Now, I've heard that quoted a dozen or so times across my history of talking about Star Trek and being a Star Trek fan. I've never found a source for it, and it's always struck me as odd. So just as a real quick litmus test, how many of you out there who are female do not like this episode? I, I guess I shouldn't ask you to oust your gender on this, but you can just answer internally. Because I know several female Trek fans who hated this episode, including my mother. Now, then I started looking into it a little bit more, and what I found is, well, let's just say that I've come to a conclusion. I'm just going to, let's just fast forward a little bit. I think that's on the production side. There's actually a line in here where the women, where is, where is it? I need to quote it word for word. Give me a sec. Oh, it's not in this one, is it? Oh, no, here it is, here it is. Uh, every woman on the lot who read it was coming up to Brandon and patting him. That's a quote from Renee Echeverria. Now, it's worth noting that Echeverria also implies that Braga himself hated the episode, despite the fact that Braga's actual interview quote says he likes it. I think there is some stuff going on with this episode, is what I'm trying to say. Now, the gender issues weren't as big then, back in the 90s, as they are now, but they were still an issue. And it's entirely possible there was some politics going around in this. I, I hate to say that, but you can kind of see why they'd be like, mm -hmm, because Jerry Taylor was really pushing this episode, and she said, now this is a fun one, it is a romance, but we do have women in our audience, and women do traditionally respond to romantic stories. It's a direct quote from Jerry Taylor. If you want the full quote, <clears throat> I'll, I'll go and give it to you for full context. It came as a pitch from a freelance writer. The original spec script was that there had been aliens throughout history who had been possessing people, and they were responsible for much of what we call supernatural paranormal events. That writer had the idea of the Scottish kind of origins of Beverly, Rick and Michael were very distrustful of the story. They considered it a romance novel in space and felt it was possibility for embarrassment was monumental. But I just kind of knew it would work. It's a different kind of story for Tartrick to tell. It is a romance, but we do have women in our audience, and women do traditionally respond to romantic stories. And, and then she goes on to talk about something unrelated. Now, um, that to me kind of gets across the point. What I'm looking at here is a script that people didn't like. Remember, Gates McFadden, who was female, did not like this episode. What I'm getting here is that amongst the production staff, some of the women were in favor of it because Jerry Taylor was in favor of it because she was pushing... I, I, God, I don't want to say it that way, but she was pushing a female agenda. Not, not that there's an... God, I don't even know how to phrase this properly. Remember, this is the woman who was constantly hampering Catherine Janeway's development. Now, she was not alone in that. But a lot of the early problems with Catherine Janeway are because of Jerry Taylor, because she insisted that she needed to be a strong, you know, proud woman. And remember, there were certain people on the production staff, <clears throat> excuse me, who believed that the audience would never accept a female captain, which is bullcrap, by the way. That was bullcrap in the 90s. It's ridiculous now. So the idea that they had to constantly portray her in a very specific light just to make sure the audience will accept her was malarkey and completely hampered the character. If you ask people their favorite captains, it usually goes something along the lines of Cisco, Kirk, Picard are all up here, and the exact order varies. 
then it's usually Janeway, and then Archer, or Archer, then Janeway. They're always in the lesser category. Now, I find that to be a damn shame. Kate Mulgrew is actually a very good actress, and frankly, so is... Scott Bakula. That took me a second, sorry. They're good actors. That's not the problem. You look at Archer Season 3, you look at Archer Season 4, that's a good captain. There's some good stuff there. That's awesome. You look at Janeway's good episodes, and there's some great stuff there, and that's awesome. The problem isn't on that level. I, I, I Forgive me for kind of winding around the circle here, but my point is... Well, let's just go in and get my point. I don't think there's any gender-line division on this episode at all. I don't. I think that this was something that was being pushed, especially given the fact that Voyager was on its way up, and that there was disagreement amongst the executives on exactly how it should be perceived, and that led to people taking sides in a situation where there were no sides to take. This is not female versus male. It's not. Okay? This is a bad episode. If you enjoy it, that's great. I, that's awesome, in fact. I've said this so many times, the world needs more joy in it. So if you find enjoyment from this, that's amazing, and I'd love to hear about it, and I'd love to hear why. I would. But I vehemently disagree with the fact that there's any kind of agenda that can be presented as a versus scenario with this one when it comes to gender lines. God, I've just started talking about this episode. I, I haven't even started talking about the episode. I haven't even addressed why I consider this lamentation worthy yet. I will, don't worry. I regret one thing, though. You remember, if you remember my force of nature rumination, uh, I, I mentioned there that I looked up eight separate sites, uh, geek sites, trek sites, and all of them had this episode listed in their bottom five of episodes. I regret doing that because I like to walk into this and make my own opinion, you know, my own interpretation. In fact, I had a similar problem with Prophet and Lace, actually. Like, at the beginning of the episode, it was just, okay, sure. But as the episode came on, it just started becoming worse and worse and worse. It's like, unlike Code of Honor, which is like being stabbed in the chest four times, this is like someone slicing up your your arm, just a bit, and then slicing it again, and then slicing it again, and then slicing it again, and then slicing it again. It's a whole lot of little things that are all wrong, and it just builds up over time until you you're you're bleeding out, basically. And I suppose that gets across the variance. Code of Honor. <laughs> Sub Rosa. Which is worse? <laughs> oh, excuse me. I also have to mention that uh, Duncan Regar is in this episode as Ronan. It's really weird going back and rewatching this episode because I look at him and all I see is Shakar. Maybe he did survive the events of this episode and went on to possess a, a Bajoran and become Prime Minister. <laughs> And that's why Kira, I mean, you know. Anyways. <clears throat> so. So now we have a main character who has is revealing more information about a, uh, a very close relative that's always been close to them and has always been important for their development, but they never really mentioned them before, except for once in season one. That sounds really familiar. Uh, Nana. She just, oh my god, she constantly emphasizes how Nana was the one who raised her and was super important to her. That's, that's of course, why she's never been mentioned before and why Wesley isn't here, of course. Why would he be here? He's he, And for the record, no, he hasn't gone off to join the energy combos, whatever. Also, 
despite being someone so important or she never even mentioned Ronan? Or the guy who helped take care of her? So that, that's neat. The episode then jumps into an as you know. No, literally. The the guy, the, the mayor, says word for word, as you know, Captain. That's never a good sign. The moment I heard that, I was just like, oh no, even the script is bad, isn't it? And sure enough, yeah, I'm not going to point out every example. This is a bad script. <laughs> this, <laughs> Sorry, Braga. This, this is a bad script. It's okay. We still got Genesis to look forward to. So, <clears throat> they talk about this colony and how they're using these stabilizers and weather control things to force it into something that approximates Scotland. Okay, that's neat. Um, and the candle must go. It's a curse. You need to remove it. I'll have nothing to do with it. You've got to kill the candle. It's so important that you kill the... He could explain. For five milliseconds, he could explain. He doesn't, of course. No, he just, he just rants that there is a curse. This is actually a very typical horror story approach to storytelling. You have, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's, it's a specific archetype of a character. It's, it's the warning, right? The seer or whatever. And they show up in the first act to say, no, it's cursed, it's going to be horrible. They don't elaborate. They just give the warning, which is always ignored. Seriously, think about any major horror film. And you could probably think of the person who fills this role right at the beginning. Sometimes they die. Oh, he dies in this one, too. That's, that's neat. <clears throat> so, there's some fluctuations in the weather system. Now, that's Ronan. He's currently living in the system. Okay, that makes sense. We also find out that he's a 34-year-old lover of his grandmother, who's 100. Yeah, no, that's just kind of icky. I'm trying to be all nice and tolerant and understand and opening, but that is actually legitimately icky. Like, <laughs> we talk about uh, age differences and how it starts to matter less the older you get. Like a 40-year-old dating a 50-year-old, that's a decade gap, and no one cares. But it's because they're within the same general bracket. And the older you get, the wider the brackets get. Like when you get 80-plus, if he was 80 and she was 100, that's a 20-year gap. No one would bat an eyelash at that because they're in the same bracket. He's 30, which is like three brackets earlier. But apparently she had an active libido, even at that point, which I'm not even going to get into. And they just have this casual conversation about that. Well, walking down the Enterprise corridor, which is just kind of awkward and uncomfortable. <clears throat> then she lays down and she falls asleep and he reaches out and influences her. I hate to ask this question because we're dealing with what is effectively a ghost, but how? Remember, he's down on the planet. There's, you know, energy, weather thing. She has the candle, but the candle isn't lit, so that's not helping. And there's no power transfer beam. That's how he gets to the ship later. So how is he doing that? <sighs> Moving on. So... Then he admits, yes, I am a ghost. <laughs> and then he starts the storm, because he's unhappy. Oh, and he kills Ned, of course. I mean, why wouldn't you kill Ned? Poor, poor Ned. Uh, actually, before I talk about killing Ned, I want to talk about something else. This is actually a, uh, a very important question. If the Enterprise had just left, like, all right, well, we attended, bye. What would Ronan have done? Well, in order to survive, um, he would have had to just kind of hang out in the weather control system for a while. 
basically forever until he found another host, which probably doesn't exist given how rare the Howard gene supposedly is. So um, he would just kind of be there until the weather system completely shut down, or forever, or both. <laughs> I'm just amused by thinking of that. No, wait, Beverly! Ah, oh, crap! <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> no, what would have happened is the weather... He would have made the weather system go wonky, so the Enterprise would turn around, and then he would try to get his hooks into Beverly again. That's probably what would have happened. Anyways, so... Big green weather with big green lightning. Yeah, you're making it a little too obvious episode, but that's okay. And then the flowers show up, and then he touches her. And then the episode gets really bad. Okay, so here's the thing. If the episode portrayed this as a universally negative thing, that would be a little more acceptable. Still kind of like, uh, because at that point it is, let's call it what it is, rape. He forces himself on her. There's a scene in this episode where he, she literally says at the top of her lungs, Stop it! As, she, as he's continuing to touch her. I don't feel the need to add anything to that. Very next scene, she's totally cool, and on the Enterprise and arranging flowers, and acting all, I'm in love. That right there is all I need to know about what's going on. This is straight-up mind control. This is him usurping her freedom of will and controlling her. Now, that's important because that's horrible and awful in many different ways. Recently, I talked about Mass Effect 2, and hopefully sometime this last year I'll have had a chance to replay it on stream. Going back through Mass Effect 2, there's a... Sorry, this is a very minor spoiler for it, but there's a loyalty mission for Jacob. And on that loyalty mission, we find out that in order to... Uh, a crew crash lands on a planet. In order to keep people alive, they keep the good food for the, the upper echelons, and everyone else eats the local food, which makes them highly suggestible, and you can imagine exactly what happens. People start building their own personal slave kingdoms and harems. It's exactly as disgusting and horrible as it sounds. And the game is forthright in showcasing just how messed up this is, right? So it's still kind of whore, but you can, at least it is being portrayed as whore. Now, keep that in mind, and I quote, It is a romance, but we do have women in our audience, and women do traditionally respond to romantic stories. This isn't romance. This isn't even on the same page as romance. Unless you are willing to count something like locking someone in a cellar romance, because that's the rough equivalent of this, the more mundane equivalent of what's happening here. Actually, there is a mundane equivalent that's better than that. Gates McFadden is a good actress. She does what she can with this episode. She behaves as though she is a crack addict. She does a good job of it. It becomes very clear she is jonesing for his interaction, for his metaphasic, or excuse me, anaphasic energy. That she literally, there's this bit where she gets up on, on I can't pull my legs all the way up here, but you know, she gets her legs up and she's on the, the bed just like, come on, I did it. I'm here. I can't even do it as well as she did. It is very clear that that's what's being portrayed as. He is, he has forced 
he has forced her to become addicted to this drug, and now he is withholding it as part of a sexual domination thing. That's horrible. Keep that in mind. So this is not a romance. This isn't even close to it. This is a hostage situation. This is kidnapping and abuse and things I don't even want to talk about because I've already said the word once. I hate that word. I hate that word. That's the first reason this pisses me off. This is the first reason. that This is the first check mark. Well, actually, it's the second check mark. The first check mark is the bad script. But the, the second check mark is this is vile and it's being portrayed as a romance story? No. So, <clears throat> um, she's fine. Uh, Ronan kills Ned. It's always good to have your lover be a murderer, too. That's, that's nice. I'm with it. I'm with it. There's this bit where she comes in, Did you miss me? And she just, this is actually before the bed scene, but she's still, Oh, God, please, please. Where are you? I need you right now. Oh, God. She even does this subtly. In this scene and the next one, which is the bed scene I've already referenced two times, she portrays someone who is just completely descending into withdrawal. Okay? Then there's this bit where she resigns her commission and goes to beam down to the surface. And here she subtly portrays someone who is, you know, jonesing. Because she has no patience. She's just, you can just tell, I just need to get down to the planet, please energize. Uh, you actually don't have the right to keep me here unless you're going to kidnap me, energize. It's just very understated. And I just wanted to give credit to Gates McFadden's acting because it's probably the only highlight of this entire episode. I actually had another highlight. I had to cross it out. <laughs> okay, so let's bring this to our second problem. Why does Picard let her go? I know what you're thinking. Well, she resigned her commission. Yeah, that should have been warning bell number two. Here's the thing. You ever hear me complain about when a character acts out of character and everyone else doesn't notice? It's one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to fiction. I'd say like my fifth biggest pet peeve. Pisses me off every time it happens. It happening in like a season one of a show? Uh, okay. Happening in season seven is completely unexcusable. And hey, I've brought this up recently too, haven't I? So, Crusher here is acting incredibly uh, out of character, basically. Something is very clearly wrong. This is a confined to quarters scenario. This is a, I am concerned that there's something up, we need to figure out what's going on scenario. Now, the best part, if he had actually confined her or tried to prevent her from going down, then in so doing, she would have flipped out more, more thereby confirming the suspicion that something's wrong and giving them a chance to actually fix it. No, Picard just lets her go. This is then compounded by Troy. This is check mark number three against the episode. Actually, four. Sorry, we're up to four now. So hang on. Bad script. Just disgusting abuse on woman. That's just horrible. And the fact that she's totally being mind-controlled and nobody notices. Well, okay, I shouldn't say it that way, but nobody does anything about it, really. This brings us to check mark four. Troy. Now, I like Marina Sirtis. I even like Troy. I think there's, she's been handed some good episodes every now and again, and I think she was overall mistreated on the show, but I do, th I do like her as a character, okay? I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing her in Picard. However, this is Troy at her worst, in my opinion, because Troy is, there's no better word for it, she's an enabler at every point and in, in step in this. 
When Crusher goes to talk to her about these super erotic dreams she had and how it was more than dreaming after reading this journal, that should have set up at least one flag for Troy. At least one. You know what she says? Oh, you should read two chapters. That sounds so wonderful. Then, later on in the episode, when Picard and Troy are discussing this, Picard says this is amazingly out of character for Beverly. This is wrong. Something's up with her. Troy says, maybe, but we have no right to stop her from, doing, from making her decision, whether we think it's right or wrong. Okay, Troy, you missed the conversation point here. This isn't, I think what she's doing is wrong. This is, I th think something is wrong with her. There's a gap of difference there. It's about 13 kilometers wide, and you just fell into the chasm. Troy! You'd think she would notice, by the way. You do have empathic abilities, right? Do you detect anything going on here? No, of course you don't. So that's point four against the episode. Troy. <sighs> then, so she's resigned, and Troy does her stupid thing, and she goes down to the planet, and Ronan's like, No, we should be together forever. <laughs> Picard shows up. Now, now Picard decides to show up. Why didn't you... Whatever. And so he's like, I'd like to meet Ronan. And then he asks some fairly basic questions of Ronan. This is the best part. His questions really are very basic. And he, did, he just chops Ronan's story up completely. Like, okay, dude, whatever. You're obviously a fake, so what's actually going on here? Oh, you want to exhume the grave? Okay, make sure you get permission from the mayor first, because we do things right on this ship. I actually do agree with that. And then we'll figure it out. So then Ronan attacks Picard. They had an opportunity to do something good here, and they came so close. What should have happened is Beverly's medical training should have kicked in. Now, I've actually talked about this before. In fact, I just talked about this in Homeward. There's a degree of medical mentality that you build into yourself. Um, let me actually rewind for a second. Anybody who deals with certain types of professions, like an airplane pilot or someone who's a soldier, or someone who's a medical professional. I'm sure there's others, I don't know, please forgive me. Y you spend a lot of training and time and experience in practice to hone your instincts to basically bypass your mind to the point where you react so quickly. R race racers do this too, professional racing people. Uh, like in Formula One, the, the, if you ever actually study this, the way in which they react is so built into them that they don't even realize they're reacting until they've already done it. That's the benefit of training and precise honing of that instinct, or whatever you want to call it, right? So, medically speaking, I have seen my aunt get see someone get hurt, and without breaking a beat, just go over, grab over, and try to figure out how to deal with it, just instantly. Medical training taking over and just kicking in without her even really being aware of what she's doing. It's actually kind of cool to watch because you can see how much that training works. I've seen that as recently as... Uh, that would have been about six years ago at this point when I was visiting family. So it's still there. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't actually... She's not even a practicing nurse. Hasn't been for a long time. She went into the teaching and she still did, she still did that. Point being... That kind of, they could have shown Crusher like that. Medical training, bam, kick in, go thing. But instead, it's portrayed as, no, it's Picard and I love him so much. I want to be with you, Ronan, but I must save Picard's life. It sh there should have been a detachment, is what I'm trying to say. It's portrayed completely wrong. It doesn't come across as her having medical training kick in as a way to bypass the mind control. Instead, it comes across as a her 
basically arguing with her abusive lover that she needs to not allow him to kill her friend, her best friend, which is a completely different tone and much, much worse in my opinion. This then leads to the big confrontation. Um, so, you know, actually, quick aside, why does Picard live? He was hit by the same crap that killed Ned. Oh, right, character shields. Bad script, point one, moving on. So then they go out to the area, and, you know, it's like, ah, and then... <laughs> then Crusher acts like this is some big choice, and she's being so driven to this, which makes sense since she's basically going through severe drug withdrawals right now. That is how she's portrayed it. Except when she kills him, she starts sobbing, No, I've killed my lover. And then the episode ends, and she's... And the one good thing, the one and only thing that could have salvaged the lamentation status is torpedoed. Because then she mentions, Well, for all that he did, he did make my, my grandmother very happy. Oh my god, you did not just do that episode. Keep in mind everything I've talked about, okay? About the nature of this relationship. About the exact presentation of... This is point two, if you remember, of the four points we've brought up so far. Keep in mind the nature of the abuse and the control and the alteration and the, the imposition. I don't know. I, I'm trying to say these in neutral words to disguise how disgusted I am. I'm actually getting angry enough that I'm having trouble talking. So let's just go ahead and take a moment, take a breather. For them to portray that in any kind of positive light is mind-boggling. Remember what I said about Mass Effect 2? Imagine if one of the women there had said, Oh, well, you know, he was sexually abusing me and controlling me as his slave for years, but he did make me very happy because that's exactly what this episode just said. I have talked about this episode to a lot of people over the years at conventions, forums, right, you know, usual, in person with friends. I have never heard one person ever take the argument that, oh, he really loved them. He wasn't just a parasitic, abusive boyfriend. He loved them. I've never heard anyone take that tact. And I can kind of see why, having gone through with analysis mode on. God, this literally leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Excuse me. You know what's funny? I went ahead, after, after watching the episode, after making up my mind, after coming up with the four points I've shared with you, I actually have a fifth point, by the way. Um, I went ahead and re-looked up those eight sites I referenced earlier and actually read the reviews on them. And you know what's funny is all of them said the same basic thing. Oh, well, this episode is just kind of weird and creepy. That's oh, the episode where Crusher has sex with a ghost. Enough said. And so forth and so on. They all seem to be focusing on that. No one talked about anything I've brought up here. I have a weird feeling they couldn't bring themselves to truly analyze this episode because it's this, just that drecky. I don't blame them, but hey, it's my job. Which brings me, by the way, to point five. Now, I've been using this hand, so let's visually distinguish here for a second, okay? Points of story, okay? Plot, characterization, character growth, themes, setting, fun. That's the six points of story, right? So, <clears throat> plot? <clears throat> nope. 
Characterization, nope, no additional characterization. Character growth, nope, no one changes in any significant way throughout this. Themes, there's no theme here. World building, nope. What's the point of this episode? This is my fifth point, by the way, right here. This is actually kind of, this. I, I kind of already referenced this with Code of Honor, that if you take away all the dreck, it's still a bad episode. That's the problem here. Even if you pare away all the stuff that is just horrible, what you're left with is a bad episode that doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's an hour of television. There is not a single point on the five points of story that is present. The only one I am not willing to put a definitive statement on is the sixth point, fun, because that's always subjective to the individual. And again, if you enjoy this episode, that's awesome. And I mean that. Um, I have heard stories of people who enjoy this episode because it's so bad it's good. And that's a valid perspective. I have things I enjoy that are so bad they're good. I get that. <laughs> I kind of enjoy Star Trek V now, having gone back through it. It's still a crap movie, but I like laughing at it. <laughs> and it's got some actually legitimately good points to it, too. So, yeah, you know, I'm with it. I get it. I don't know what else to add to this. I want to say one last thing. I asked my own viewers their opinions on this episode. I didn't get a lot of big responses, unfortunately. Um, but something that Huthor said stuck with me. It's weird without the charm that Star Trek... So, uh, I forget how he phrased it. It's weird without the charm that Star Trek usually has to bypass the weird. And that kind of stuck with me. Because that charm is part of what I actually really like about Star Trek. It's part of what kept me going through Voyager. The dynamic between the characters of early Voyager is what buoyed that show. I've said that many times. The episodes are kind of crap, but the characters are pretty good, and the actors are great. And you could tell there was just some real passion and talent going into that. It just was being hampered by awful scripting and terrible executive decisions and a general approach towards wallpaperiness, which I don't want to talk about right now. But you can kind of see how that charm helped elevate the show. And I think that's part of why Season 7 hasn't been as bad for me as I thought it would be so far. I know, I'm, I'm talking about this here. But we're halfway through Season 7 now. And so far, it's actually been a lot better than I remember. And I think it's because of that, because of that charm, which helps to drag otherwise boring or uninteresting episodes to something that's actually enjoyable to watch. Which brings me to this episode. In my opinion, none of that charm is here. You remember how many times I talk about the incredible chemistry between Gates McFadden and Patrick Stewart? It is absolutely absent in this episode. Now, most of Crusher's scenes are with Troy, and the two of them just don't gel together at all. And I already complained about Troy. She was an entire point on my five points of why I dislike this episode. And the few scenes they have together... Crusher is, is in full manic, I've been drugged up out of my mind mode. Now, that's good, but it doesn't play well with the way Picard is played. And so all that chemistry is gone. <laughs> the only scene, the only scene the two have together that works at all is when Picard is lying on the floor and says, go, go get him, it's okay, I'll be fine. That's the only one. <sighs> Well, I don't think this episode comes close to, you know, Code of Honor, as I already mentioned. I think this one deserves the lamentation status. As ever and always, I am looking forward to your guys' thoughts. I'm sorry we had to close out the year on this one. 
for those of you who are not aware, I do these in yearly blocks, which means it's probably going to be like nine or ten months before I move on to the next episode, because I'm done for the year. So, this was a hell of an episode to end my YouTube cycle on. This is actually the last episode I'm recording for this particular YouTube cycle. Sabrosa. I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> oh, Happy New Year, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. I'll see you next time.